Well, go ahead and take your Bible with me this morning and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to start right out in the beginning in chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first three verses this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. If you're unfamiliar where 1 Corinthians is, uh, go to the New Testament. If you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. Uh, And then right after those, you'll see Acts. And then after that, we get into the letters or the epistles, and then Romans, then 1 Corinthians. You'll see it. It's a relatively large book, 16 chapters total. We're going to be spending a handful of weeks in in this book. Uh, We're going to take the first three verses this morning. There are 437 verses, so we should be done sometime in 2022. I'm just kidding. We'll pick up the pace. But we're going to consider a few things out of this this text this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some behind that partition. There's a table and there are Bibles there. Feel free to grab one. It's important for you to have this text in front of us as it is every Sunday morning. It's important to see that the things that I'm about to communicate uh, through God's Word are, are in fact God's Word, not just me making a handful of things up. So this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. question that you probably got this morning as you walked through the door is, how are you doing this morning? How are you doing this morning? And when I ask that question, or when someone else asks you that question, what they're asking is, how are you feeling about the direction of your life in this moment? Or they're just giving you a North Dakota greeting. But how are you feeling? Are you feeling pretty good about the direction of your life in this moment? Or, or, or maybe not. Are you concerned about what's going on internally inside of you? Are you concerned about the things that are happening in your own heart? Is there a sin or some vice that is weighing you down this morning? You think you're moving past it, but it shows itself. You have a bit of unease in your stomach, and most of the time you think that things are great. You're growing as a person. You really see progress as you spend time in God's Word and with God's people. You see progress, and you see movement, but then that thing, it rears its ugly head again. You're doing battle with sin, but when that one small moment, your heart, you indulge that dark corner, then what? oftentimes I think as believers we ask the question, why is my movement towards holiness? Why is my movement towards Christ-likeness? Why is it so slow? Why is it so slow? We see our sin clearly. We repent of it, but then we find ourselves right back what seems to be right where we started the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year, and we make resolutions. We're almost the end of 2018, and that last digit in the year is going to roll over to a nine, and we think that's going to provide some new fresh start and some explosion of energy to deal with our sin, but we quickly realize that just because that last digit of the year reads differently, the same things that plagued us in 2018 feel like they plague us in 2019. And if, that's, and if that's you this morning, which 
Honestly, it's all of us. If that's you this morning, then the first three verses, a greeting in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 3. This greeting, although something that we typically skip over when we read letters of Paul or any letter in the New Testament, something that we're just like, oh, that's nice, okay, now on to the meat of the text. But this, these three verses honestly are, should be, a balm for our weary soul. And when we get to the book of 1 Corinthians, I just want to back up and get to 30,000 feet and think a little bit about why are we going to the book of 1 Corinthians. Okay, the last couple of weeks we, sp- we talked about money. Before that we talked about, I don't know, how, what, what did we talk about before that? Someone tell me. I can't even remember. Psalms. Yeah, the Psalms of Ascent. Thank you. My goodness. I got, I got a lot of sleep last night too. Thank, thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. The Psalms of Ascent. Wow. We're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians, though, over the course of the next several weeks. And there, there are really three reasons that I want to give you for why we're going to spend some time here. The first is that there are lots of intersections with the church today. There's lots of section, intersections uh, with the church in our, in our day and age. Uh, let me just give you a handful of things that we'll touch on as we spend time in 1 Corinthians. Oftentimes, churches in our day and age, or the church in general, is characterized by disunity rather than unity. We see that addressed immediately out of the gate in the book of 1 Corinthians. Oftentimes, we overemphasize human, human means. Oftentimes, we have a problematic view of sex and sexuality. that We're going to find that in the book of 1 Corinthians. Oftentimes, we have a problematic view of marriage. We're going to find that in the book of 1 Corinthians. Oftentimes we have a self-seeking as the church, as the body of Christ gathered together for God's purposes. We have a problematic view or a self-seeking or self-promoting or self-centered attitude. Or we have an overemphasis on the material world. Or when we see uh, the church in 1 Corinthians, we have a misuse or a misunderstanding of, of the Lord's Supper as we celebrate monthly. Or we have a misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts. Or we have an unhealthy admis- admiration of the, the flashy Lights and smoke shows. Living like eternity is already upon us. We do this all of the time. We have an over-realized eschatology. The intersections are very clear in our present context. So first, there are a lot of intersections with the church in our day and age. The second thing, and I want to linger here for a moment, is we see Paul's faithfulness. We see the faithfulness of a man who wrote the majority of the New Testament. We see Paul's faithfulness in working with the church in, in Corinth. Now, it's important to see that, especially as we read the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. We're going to see a man who is is faithful despite the fact that there are tons of things that are going on in this church that would seem like Paul would be like, guys, we're done. We can't move forward. And I have to admit, it's, it's really impressive that Paul hangs in there with these people. They're doing some pretty, we're going to see it, they're going to do some pretty boneheaded things. But Paul is convinced that God is at work in their midst, and that's what we see in these first three verses this morning. But throughout the whole book, we see that Paul must be convinced that God is at work in the midst of the Corinthian church. Charles Hodge says that Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth was analogous to that of a father For a promising son beset with temptations, whose character combined great excellence with great defects. The epistles to the Corinthians, therefore, reveal to us more of the personal character of the apostle than any of his other letters. They show him to us as a man, 
as a pastor, as a counselor, as in conflict, not with heretics, but with personal enemies. They reveal his wisdom, his zeal, his forbearance, his liberality of principle, and his practice in all matters of indifference, his strictness in all matters of right and wrong, his humility, and perhaps above all, his unwearied activity and wonderful endurance. So in a society, in a society that says when things get toxic in a relationship or relationships that cut that person or people out, Paul's example in his relationship says there's something bigger than me going on. We're going to see that throughout this entire book. There, Paul is saying every, every word in this text, every word in this letter is dripping with there's something bigger than me going on. And how is it possible? We all have some relationships. We've got the holidays coming up. We've got some negative relationships in our, in our lives. And everyone does. People, people have hurt you. They've wronged you. They frustrate you. They rub you the wrong way. We have a tendency as people, we have a tendency to internalize their, our, these relationships. Now, my mentor suggested this to me about a year or so ago. If I'm to internalize every negative interaction or relationship that I have, I will suffer from burnout and frustration at every turn in my life. And my, my family, honestly, will suffer also. And so we can learn from Paul's example here because rather than internalizing all of these crummy relationships that he's going to have with a handful of people in the church in Corinth, instead of internalizing those, he, he refuses to do that. And instead, what he does is he internalizes the gospel. He internalizes the gospel. Paul's example here is one that doesn't internalize anything other than the gospel itself. And that's what we need to take away. There are highs and a whole lot of lows in Paul's ministry to the church in Corinth. And if he were to internalize the lows, he would have had to walk away before he even sat down to, to write this letter. Paul's gospel ministry was much more than feeling good. Paul's gospel ministry was much more important than feeling good. And as ministers of reconciliation is what Paul tells the Corinthians that they are in, in 2 Corinthians, he tells them that they are ministers of reconciliation as those who have been charged with the truth of the gospel and taking the gospel out into a world that is desperate in desperate need of it. The same must be true for you and I. Our gospel ministry, friends, is, is, is way more important than, than feeling good. In fact, the ministry of the gospel, sharing the gospel with people in our Co-workers, friends, neighbors, it can come with great pain, great frustration. And there is no such thing as sharing the gospel safely. There's no such thing as sharing the gospel safely. And so when Paul applies the gospel to the Corinthian church, who is obviously living outside of the stream of where they should be, when Paul applies the gospel, he finds himself in dangerous territory. I love what Martin Luther, Martin Luther says in his commentary on the Galatians, he writes this. He says, soft martyrs take no chances. They go where the gospel has taken hold so they may not endanger their lives. Friends, we come into this environment and we see people around us who have believed the truth of the gospel. But if this is the only environment where we find ourselves prepared to talk about or speak about 
the gospel and we aren't ready to go out into a world that is dramatically hostile towards the gospel and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in a world of darkness, then we've done exactly what Luther says here. We've made ourselves soft martyrs. We go where the gospel has taken hold so that we may not endanger our lives. But Paul's ministry to Corinth didn't end when things got messy, when it endangered his mental and emotional health. We know that Paul didn't care about physical threat. He got shipwrecked, he was beaten all the time with rod, floggings, etc. We see here that his mental and emotional threat didn't deter him either because he found his foundation not in what came in from external sources but was placed inside of him as a minister of the gospel. Paul's gospel ministry was the most important calling or appointment that he had and he trusted God then with his whole being, emotional, physical, mental, spiritual. He trusted God with his whole life. And therefore, when he found himself in a context ministering to a church that was beset with problems, he found himself with the ability to be faithful. Thirdly then, third reason we're going to look at this, at this book in its entirety is that there are a handful of topics that this letter highlights that we would do well to take note of, especially for us, specifically as Buffalo City Church. If you've identified with Buffalo City Church as your church home, we want to talk about a handful of these things because they're important for us in our current context. And some of these things intersect with the first point that I made, uh, that, uh, that there are a lot of intersections with the church in our day and age. For us specifically, we need to apply some of these things to our day-to-day, especially as it relates to sex, marriage, spiritual gifts, unity, and we'll go on and on and we'll, we'll look at those things. So we're going to dive into this letter. We're going to consider the first three three verses this morning, and I read them a moment ago. And I want to point out three things then for us this morning, uh, sort of, yeah, they outlined by the, the way that Paul actually writes this. So verse one, we're going to see that Paul has apostolic authority. Secondly, then in, in verse two, we're going to see the, what the Corinthians' identity is and what Paul preaches to them or speaks to them. And then third, we're going to see uh, the gospel results that come about just through this, just through this greeting. So we'll take those in turn. Consider just verse one with me then, right out of the gate. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So this is Paul's authority as, a, uh, as an apostle. That's what he's doing here. He's establishing it. This might seem like a strange place to start, but honestly, this is where Paul starts every New Testament letter that he writes. It's an absolutely necessary place for him to start because Paul wants the Corinthians to remember that he's not writing just as any person. He's not writing just as any person from one person to another, but he's, he is one who is appointed. He is one who is sent by God. And he, so he says right out of the gate, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle in Christ Jesus. And if you, we get through 1 Corinthians, and you go, if you go to 2 Corinthians, you'll see that very clearly this is a major issue for the church in Corinth. And it probably was at least the seeds of this problem for the church in Corinth were present when Paul penned these words in this first letter that we have. They didn't, they didn't think that his authority was important. They discarded it. They thought that he, he was just one other voice in their, in their context speaking to them. But Paul says very clearly, Paul, me, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And now he uses there that word called, and that word is going to be very important for us throughout the time, our time together 
in 1 Corinthians. The word called or call or calling uh, is going to be important for us. We usually think about that word as a, a vocation. What is my calling, right? You should be a dolphin trainer or a, or a maker of fine chocolates or something like that. But that's not the way that this is used in, in this instance. It's not used this way in the New Testament. Again, Charles Hodge says it this way. I think this is the, the, the proper definition here. He says, it always refers to, calling always refers to the call of God by his word and his spirit. It always refers to the call of God by his word and his spirit. So we've entitled this sermon series, Consider Your Calling, because when we get to verse 26, that's what Paul is going to say. He's going to say, for consider your calling, brothers. And he's going to say, not many of you were, uh, were wise. Not many, of you were, uh, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And then he says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of, of God. And so that word calling is going to be important for us. The call of God by his word and his spirit. Consider then your calling. This is Paul's calling now. Paul is going to argue for the rest of the letter, consider your calling in this sense that, that Hodge puts it. The call of God by his word and his spirit. So, and then we see that word actually in verse 2 also. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So we see this word twice in the first two, two verses. Called to be saints. And we'll come back to that when we get to verse 2. But the point right there is that the word calling is important. It's vital for our understanding as we come to this book. And our primary calling then is as saints, and again, we'll unpack that in a moment. But so Paul says that he's called to the, by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the office of apostle, what he's saying here, is not a vocation. It's not a vocation. This was not Paul's nine to five. Rather, this is a specific role that God placed Paul in to serve the church. And really the call is an appointment. The office of apostle is not one that any of us in this room can have because it's a direct sending by God himself or by Jesus himself. The office of apostle is reserved for men that founded the church. And the word literally means messenger or sent one. So we see apostle, we see messenger or sent one. Paul is actually claiming to be appointed and sent directly by God through Jesus Christ. And so you can't be an apostle, I can't be an apostle. The real takeaway is that Paul is called or appointed directly by God and therefore has authority to give instruction to the church. Paul has, is appointed directly by God and therefore has the authority to give the instruction that he's about to give the church in Corinth. So Paul is an apostle. He's called by the will of God. He's a messenger. He's appointed by God directly. And so Paul's opening here establishes credibility. In our culture, we, we always sign the letters at the end, right? We, signed, we sign our letters at the end. Do we put our email signature or have our title under our signatures on a letter? 
Um, it's to establish our authority. If I wrote to you, if we wrote an email and said to you, you need to brush your teeth six times a day, and then in my email signature it said that I was a meteorologist, you say, what does a meteorologist know about brushing teeth? And then, they would, and then you would discard my instruction, right? You would ignore that because meteorologists aren't, that's not their specialty. And the same here is true for Paul. He identifies himself as one who is called by the will of God to be an apostle of God's messenger. And therefore, he has authority to instruct them in matters of the church and of right living and the impact the gospel has on all of their lives. He's saying, what he's saying is, hey, Corinthians, you need to take note of what I'm about to communicate. Now, our culture is largely skeptical of any type of authority. We're largely skeptical of any type of authority. This is true in our, in our day-to-day lives with those who are above us in our, in our workplace or those who we come in contact with who claim any, any type of authority. Oftentimes, we're skeptical of authority because we see so many people mishandling it in our, in our culture. We see all over the place. We are called, we are, we are expected as people in our current culture, we are expected to question authority. And we've taken that universal skepticism and much of our Christian culture has applied it to the Bible. So when Paul writes this through the apostolic authority that's granted to him by God, when Paul writes this, he's saying these words, these things that I'm about to tell you are coming through the inspiration of the Spirit. But, but we, when we come to our Bible, we often take it less Less, uh, we, we give it less weight or we read it less fervently than other things like, like mombogs or a daily devotional. And we might have not have a problem understanding what the Bible is as much as we have a problem uh, with what it claims to be, the authority that the Bible claims to have in our life. And if Paul is right here, if he is an apostle appointed by the will of, the, uh, will of God, then his words should be infinitely more important to us than the words of Billy Graham or Francis Chan or Rachel Hollis. No Christian author or personality has the ability or authority to claim what Paul is claiming right here. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. But we hang on the words of others far more intently than we do the word of God. And by doing so, oftentimes we open ourselves to the assault of, of the evil one. What I'm not saying is that we should follow, not blindly follow or we should not weigh properly when people make claims based on authority. But we should be willing to hear and heed when authority is clearly established. That's what Paul does here. God established Paul as an apostle. Paul is an authority and the Corinthians should listen. God established his word as the ultimate authority in the lives of his people and we should listen and repent of skepticism. Mark Dever in the, the book Compelling, The Compelling Community, he writes this. He says, the Bible tells us that the universal, universal skepticism of authority isn't wise, it's satanic. The idea of distrusting authority didn't originate in our own generation, but with a serpent in the garden. The lie he planted in Eve's mind was that God cannot love us and say no to us simultaneously. That affection necessarily implies approval. If you have young kids, you know that the result of sin will. You see it flash before their eyes every time you say no. Every time you say no, they think to themselves, can mom and dad really love me and say no to me? You know that this is, this is true. Our, but our affection doesn't necessarily imply approval. How could mom or dad love me and let me do whatever I want? 
And again, when we, come to, when we come to this statement that Paul makes and the authority that's claimed here and all throughout Scripture, we must ask ourselves, based on what? Based on what? And the reality is that it's based on God himself. And so Paul's introduction of himself is an appeal to authority. The Corinthians needed to take note, and we need to take note as well. The words of Paul writes uh, here are the words of God himself. He appointed Paul. God appointed Paul as a messenger and as an apostle of his truth. So then, so then we move to verse 2, right? We see verse 2 here where Paul writes, To the church of God. So now he's addressing the letter to the church in Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We see that Paul wants to remind the Corinthians who they are. And again, we're going to, as we process this book together, we see this, this letter that the church in Corinth is beset with problems. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And each of these statements has a really important uh, thrust to it, and they're closely related. When he says to the church, when he says to these people, he says, those sanctified in Christ. Uh, the word sanctification is one that is oftentimes intimidating to us. And we wonder, what does that actually mean? What is sanctification? Uh, the, the Corinthians are those who are sanctified in Christ. And what Paul is saying is that they are made holy. That they are set apart. That's what we think about it. We, they're set apart. They're set apart from the world. Through the shed blood of Jesus, the, the Corinthians now are, are set apart. They're no longer part of the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world because they are new creatures in, in Christ. And so Paul is saying that they're made holy or set apart. So when he says this, it's not, it's not, it's not, it shouldn't intimidate us. It's just, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are set apart for, or in Christ Jesus for his, his purposes. And so Paul, in effect, reminds them of the gospel. He says, there is only one way to be set apart, and that's through the sacrifice of Christ. And that in Christ is, is essential. What he doesn't say is, they're not set apart by works, or they're not set apart by their adherence to the law. And the list of problems that the church has is enough for us to clearly see that they're certainly not set apart by their, by their works or their law-keeping. They're not set apart by their wisdom. We're going to see that. I read that a moment ago from verse 27. They're not set apart by their social standing. Paul will make that clear later in chapter 1 also. And the Corinthian believers were set apart because of the atoning work of Christ Jesus on their behalf. His sacrifice and only his sacrifice is why they're set apart. So he preaches the gospel to them. He says, to those sanctified in Christ, to those set apart because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That is the church in Corinth. That is who they are. That is their identity. Those who have been set apart by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And now, when we think about the word sanctified, there's two senses. So he says it in the first sense. The first sense is that they are, they are made holy. They've been given a once and for all gift of, of holiness. In this sense, it's given to us. It's not ongoing, but it's immediate. It's immediately applied to those who have repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ, that he's the only way to have right relationship with God the Father reestablished. 
And in this sense, Paul is using the word here in the first half of verse 2. He's saying uh, sanctified in Christ means that there is nothing else that they need. They have all that they need. There is nothing more that they need. But the second meaning is, is what the rest of the book is going to move us towards. The second meaning that Paul is going to use the word sanctification with is progressing towards holiness in our lives. We're not perfect. We know that. We are not perfect, and neither were the Corinthians. But we are striving through the power of the Spirit to grow in godliness. We are striving through the power of the Spirit to grow in holiness, in personal sense. And this clarifies then what Paul writes next when he says, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says that they are called to be saints. And the word translated saints here is similar to the word sanctify that Paul just got done using. The Corinthians are called by God through the message Paul proclaims to live lives that look more and more like Jesus. So Paul's argument, Jesus lived a life free from sin. In him you are cleansed from sin, so now put off sin. Jesus lived a life free from sin. In him you are cleansed from sin, so now put off sin. Or Jesus was holy. In him you are holy, and so now live a life of holiness. Or, live a life that is in step with who you are. All you are is defined by who Jesus is, so live like Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means to be a saint. That's what it means For those who were reading this in Corinth, that's what it means for us today. Despite their failings, despite our failings, we will become well acquainted with those those failings. And Paul reminds the church in Corinth that they are part of a larger whole, right? He says, together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The, The work of Jesus didn't just save people in Jerusalem. The work of Jesus didn't just save people in Samaria. The work of Jesus didn't just save people in Rome. The work of Jesus saved people all over the entire globe, all over the entire world, to the ends of the earth. The gospel isn't limited to a region, but it goes out to the whole world. It's not centered on a geographical location, but on a people. And the hallmark of those people is that they are called by God to be saints. They are called by God to be holy. They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be set apart. They call upon the name of the Lord to be set apart and to rely on his strength to be made more like him in their day to day. This is the portrait of the church. This is what a church looks like. Those who understand that they are called to holy living, but have already been made holy by the one in whom they trust. Sinners calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is true all over the world. So we move to verse 3 then. So Paul establishes his own authority. And then he reminds the Corinthian church who they are, and then he greets them. He writes, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever read, read the epistles, if you've ever read, read letters of Paul, he, oftentimes uh, he starts out this way. I think almost every time he does. Why? Martin Luther writes about the grace and peace greeting. He says this, he says, The greeting of the apostle is refreshing. Grace remits sin and peace quiets the conscience. Sin and conscience torment us, but Christ has overcome these, uh, these fiends now and forever. Only Christians possess this victorious knowledge given above, from above. These two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. Grace involves the remission of sins, peace, and a happy conscience. Sin is not, the cancellation, is not canceled by lawful things. Sin is not canceled by lawful things, for no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals guilt, fills the conscience with terror, and drives men to despair. Much, like, much less is sin taken away by man-invented endeavors. The fact is, the more a person seeks to seek credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God in actual living. However, it is not easy to persuade oneself that by grace alone, in opposition to every other means, we obtain the forgiveness of our sins and peace with God. So remember that question that I asked you at, at the beginning. And let me ask it again. How are you this morning? Do you feel, are you pretty good? Or, or is there, are you happy with the direction of your life? Or, may, or maybe not. Are you concerned about what's going on internally inside of you? Is there some sin or vice that is weighing you down? You think you're moving past it, but then it shows itself. It re-reveals itself. You have a bit of ease in your stomach, and the most of the time you think things are great. You're growing as a person. You're doing battle with sin. But then one small moment, your heart indulges that dark corner. Then what? Why is the movement so slow? You see your sin clearly, you repent, but then you find yourself right back what seems to be right where you started the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year. That's you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the balm you need this morning for your soul. The grace of God has come to you in Christ and forgiven your sin. Through Jesus Christ, you can have peace. Paul would write in Romans 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been made right with God. When you know full well that your sin separated you from God, when you know that that has been dealt with, your conscience, your inside, your stomach, it can be at peace. And are, are, you in, are you struggling with internalizing your work, your difficult relationships, your failings and your shortcomings? We say, follow Paul's example and internalize only the gospel. Through the shed blood of Jesus, you have forgiveness of sins and you have peace with God. There is nothing that stands in the way of your relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ and God, your Father. When sin is used as a tool by Satan to accuse you, and friends, it will. When you fall into sin and temptation, he will use it as a tool to accuse you. 
When that happens, speak this truth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, grace has come to me. My sin has been forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus, and therefore I have nothing to fear, nothing to labor over internally. I have been sanctified. I have been made holy in Christ, and I have need of nothing else. Paul is going to quickly launch into some pretty scathing analysis and corrective instruction for the church in, in Corinth. Will the Corinthians remember the grace that came from God, which has the ability to silence Satan's accusations? Will we? Will the Corinthians recognize that they have all they need in Christ and that they are to demonstrate the outworking of that reality through holy, set-apart living? Will we? Will the Corinthians recognize the authority of God's word that's coming through his servant, Paul? Will we? Should we get to the end of our time this morning? Thinking about our, our week. Thinking about these, these first three verses. We, we have, if we're in Christ, if you're in Christ this morning, you have all that you need. But, but friends, our sanctification is a journey. It's, it's progressive. It doesn't all happen in one moment. So when you're, you're feeling like you're weighed down by your sin, you, you recognize that God is still at work in me. And that's the, that is the encouragement here. If you're struggling with a sin or maybe multiple sins this morning, be assured that God is at work in you. And if you say, no, nah, I'm not struggling with sin, then, then we have a bigger problem to deal with. Then you need to see that sin is subtle and that your pride is blinding you from seeing that your sinful flesh is very potent reality in your world. Sin isn't just doing bad things. That's kind of how we define it. We're like, I don't do bad things. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. But rather, sin is failing to love God and love your neighbor and live according to that which God created you in every moment. It's not just murder or really big bad things. You need to realize that you are struggling with sin. Friends, we all are in this room. We inhabit sinful flesh. And the new man, God has placed a new man inside of us. We are now in Christ. We are new creations and we're working, but our external, our flesh, doesn't yet match that internal reality. And so we are doing battle. Our, our, our members are at war with the new man that God has placed in, inside, of, inside of us. But God has not forgotten you. You need to know that not, God has not forgotten. He's at work inside of you. You're not the one he's forgotten about. You're not the one that he's abandoned. You're not the one he's given up on. And the movement away from sin may be slow, but rest assured if you're a child of God, God is at work. And now there's a tension here though. There's a tension because God is at work in you. God is at work in you, but you must work now to be killing sin. When you're convicted of sin, you can't just throw up your hands and say, I guess nobody's perfect. Right? You can't just throw up your hands and say, well, God will take care of it. He will. But friends, here's, here's the way in which he largely does this. This is the 
portrait that we see in the New Testament. God largely does this. He largely deals with us and moves us towards progressive sanctification by providing us with the insight in our own heart and a desire for him and his word and by the opportunity to choke out sin at its root. Friends, this is one reason that the church was instituted, and this is why Paul writes letters to churches. Because he sees that the people of God are gathered together for God's purposes, and one of those purposes is to be made holy, to be sanctified in in Him. So the community of faith would come together and in love call out the sin within and thereby be sanctified. So we are called to engage in the local church because when we are absent from each other's lives, we tend to drift in the sea of sin and self-indulgence. Our views of ourselves are far too high if we think that we are able to identify sin in our own life regularly. Our bent towards materialism or lust or laziness or bitterness or slander. The church is a great gift designed to sanctify us through believers speaking truth and love to one another about each other's sin. And here's another reason, again, yet another one, not to float in and out whenever it's convenient for you. You're literally slowing down your own sanctification. You're not growing in Christ-likeness and Christian maturity if you're not present with the body of Christ as often as every Sunday and as much as possible throughout the week. You say, yeah, but i got a lot going on. But we're called to be saints. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be holy. And called isn't a soft suggestion. It's a reminder of a requirement. God tells his people that that's us. He tells us in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We must employ every strategy under the sun to choke out the sin at the root that, in, that, that, that compromises our holy living. And God gives us the tools. He gives us corporate worship. He gives us the people of God to providentially assist in that process. Trying to live a life of personal holiness while only engaging the the church and the body of Christ when convenient is like a chef trying to run a five-star restaurant with no stovetop and no oven. I was reading about the, the Protestant Reformation this week. And and the author I was reading noted that what changed during the Reformation was that the center of the Christian life, the center of the Christian life was restored from the organization of the church to the gospel itself. And the gospel became central. The, The truth of who Jesus is and what he did for us through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. That's the center of our life and why we gather together as a church. We're not here in this room because we like the music or the preaching or the the people. The preaching is whatever. But you could probably take it or leave it. But we're here in this room because of what Paul writes to us in Romans 1.16. He says, we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's why we're in this room. Because we affirm together as God's people that the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. Jesus took your sin 
He made you whole again. He restored your relationship with God. And he gives you the power to live a life that's pleasing to God. No longer just living for yourself, but living a life that puts off sin and serves the king of the universe. And friends, your sanctification, God's work in your daily life to make you look more like Jesus is a battle that you will fight this week and every week until the grave or until Jesus returns. You are, you are holy. God has made you through the sacrifice of Jesus. God has made you holy, but you are called to now live a life of holiness. So this week in in your community group, find someone. Ask them to help you in your struggle against sin. Ask them to hold you accountable and to pray for you. Or ask somebody to have coffee or say, get lunch. Share that you need help in your struggle against sin. Or maybe you need help in your marriage. Sit down with another couple and say, we need help in our struggle against sin. If you've been a Christian for a long time, one of the most effective strategies that Satan has against you is that you would grow complacent in your battle against sin and you'd let up and let the foot off the gas and say, hey, things are going pretty well. If you've been a Christian for a short amount of time, one of the most effective strategies that Satan has against you is that you would think that you can do it alone. It's slowly eroding your faith and enticing you with the allures of the world. Friends, if you're isolated this week, you have a big problem. And I'm not talking just not being around people. I'm talking about being isolated, not being around people who care enough to talk about sin and holiness. And for many of you this morning, before the day is done, many of you in this room, before this day is done, you will be tempted to view pornography. Some of you will harbor harbor bitterness against your spouse. Some of you will blow up at your kids before lunchtime. Some of you will make decisions that consider no one but yourself. And some of you will fail to forgive. What then? Friends, what then? We have to ask ourselves the question then, what are we centered on? We have to remind ourselves that just like the church in Corinth, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We are made holy because of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. And we are called then to live lives of holiness, doing battle with sin. Friends, we have all that we need in Christ, but our sanctification is a journey. It is progressive. Our personal holiness will not come in a moment. It is not a reason to give up. God is at work. God loves you so much that he did not leave you to yourself. He loves you so much that he didn't just say, go out and figure it out. He said, I'm going to give you a helper. I'm going to give you the spirit of Christ who will dwell inside of you and provide you with the necessary strength, the conviction of sin, and the ability to do combat with that sin. God didn't leave us to ourselves, not now and not for eternity. All you need, you have in Jesus. Let's pray.